Mighty nice to have you with us on this Saturday morning. I'm Sterling Fox. Larry Savage is a professor of labor studies at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, and he's the author of a piece at theconversation.com entitled Canadian Election 2021, Do Strategic Voting Campaigns Actually Work? Professor Savage, Larry, good morning, sir, and welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell us, first of all, what you, how you define strategic voting, please. Well, strategic voting occurs when you cast your ballot, not for your preferred candidate, but rather for the candidate you think is best positioned to defeat the candidate you prefer the least. So, for example, uh, you might consider yourself most closely aligned to the NDP personally, but you're told that party doesn't really have a chance in your riding. Mm-hmm. So you might vote strategically for the liberal candidate, for example, because you think they're best positioned to defeat the conservative candidate who you really don't like. Uh-huh. That, that would be an example of anti-conservative strategic voting, which is likely the most popular form of strategic voting we've seen in Canada. Of course, in B.C., it's a little more complicated because New Democrats and even some Greens may be best positioned to defeat Conservatives, depending on the riding. Mm -hmm. Uh, Canadians have a history, Larry, of voting people out rather than voting people in. We tend to want to fire people more than we want to hire them. Uh, Do you see that trend continuing this time around? Well, each election campaign, of course, has a different dynamic. And uh, I think that we've seen in a number of recent elections these waves of support. In 2015, for example, we saw this surge in support for the Trudeau liberals to vote out Harper. In 2011, you saw this orange wave in Quebec where the NDP wiped out the bloc. And so, yes, I I think uh, you're onto something there. So when we talk about strategic voting, uh, and do parties participate in strategic voting campaigns on a national level, or is this something done typically at the riding or even provincial level? Parties like to talk about strategic voting if they think it will give them some kind of advantage, and they won't talk about it if they think that it'll work against them. Okay. Most organizations, though, that are promoting strategic voting are actually outside of the party. Lots of trade unions, for example, Mm -hmm, other community organizations that, for whatever reason, don't like the conservatives. They've organized groups and they've resourced campaigns and they target specific ridings where they think their resources and efforts are going to deny the conservatives a seat. I think your, your use of the and you're a professor of uh, labor studies, so obviously this is right in your in your corner. But I think to point to the labor movement in general as major players in the strategic voting uh, approach. Is, is bang on. Do we know, uh, Dr. Savage, how many Canadians might have thought of themselves as voting strategically last time around a couple of years ago? It, well, in 2019, there was polling data that showed that about a third of voters considered voting strategically. We know that from Canadian election studies, over the years, about 20 to 25 percent of voters claim to have voted strategically. But here's the thing. Strategic voting may mean different things to different people. Good point. So, of course, like I mentioned, a lot of strategic voting we think of as as NDP sympathizers switching their votes to the liberals to block the conservatives. But 
you know, you could be a voter who wants to vote strategically against the liberals to deny them a majority. Mm-hmm. Or you might be a People's Party supporter who might decide to hold their nose and vote conservative. If you think O'Toole looks like he can beat Trudeau, you might be a Green supporter who will vote NDP if your candidate doesn't stand a chance of winning in your B.C. interior riding, for example. Mm-hmm. So the combinations are really endless. And I think the bottom line in my research of these campaigns over the last decade is that it's really a mugs game where everyone thinks they're out strategizing everyone else and that the success of these campaigns is very much overstated okay and in lots of cases people are actually helping to splinter the anti-conservative vote, thus undermining the entire strategic voting effort. And there's lots of examples of this in B.C. So uh, one other quick point or quick question to add to the mix, if you don't mind, non-voting. I was raised in Ontario by people who were very civic-minded and very politically involved and brought up, Larry, to, to understand that there's no such thing as not voting. It's your civic duty. You will do it. Period. So over the years, I've uh, tried to vote for people I thought might do a good job. And there have been a few instances, Larry, in which I thought looked at the ballot and decided there's nobody on here that I can actually legitimately feel good about supporting. But I've got to vote for somebody. So I parked my vote with the Greens, who in those days, and this goes back a while, where, where they made it to the ballot, but they didn't stand a chance of doing anything. So I could legitimately vote for them, have my my ballot tallied, and and. In, in, the, in the process, vote, uh, not vote for anybody that I didn't want to. I didn't, I didn't feel good about supporting anyone. This t- and so then the Greens have gone through a sort of a, a period of uh, almost a renaissance with a, a discovery that had a couple of MPs up to three at one point to one defected recently. Uh, and so they became a bit of a force, particularly here in B.C. Then all of a sudden, in the past, what, six months or so, they have literally, before our very eyes and before a national election, self-destructed. So once again, there's a safe place to park a protest vote, isn't it? Well, look, the Greens have imploded. There's no question about that. It'll be interesting to see the dynamics in those two seats on Vancouver Island where there are Green MPs. And I'll be interested to see if this message of strategic voting gains any kind of steam. You know, traditionally, Green Party supporters and activists have been the most opposed to strategic voting because the sense is that it disadvantages that party more than any other party for the reasons that you explained. Mm -hmm. It was always on the fringes and only recently gained some credibility having elected folks. Right. So then uh, uh, it's, again, though, I suppose the the part that is baffling to most, particularly a lot of young voters, uh, is is that this is this was their their hope for their best hope for the future. And I'm sure there are a lot of disillusioned younger voters going into this campaign going, well, now where do I go? And this is where Mr. Singh, I think, is has seen this void and is is probably, I think, at this point, the most energetic participant in in the in the show so far don't you agree i think so i think that polling has consistently shown us that he's the most popular of the leaders or the most likable of the leaders but if you really dig down into the polls it also shows that the ndp is leading amongst younger voters yeah and uh you know we know that in the last two elections 
the Liberals had a lock on younger voters. And it seems as though the NDP and Jagmeet Singh have really uh, disturbed that trend. And so young voters look like they're moving to the NDP, although the key will be on Election Day. Will they actually turn out to vote? Good point. We know that young people do not turn out to vote. Uh, in the same numbers as uh, people in older age demographics who tend to be uh, more conservative and liberal. Dr. Larry Savage joining us from Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. And Larry, just before the news, you were talking about how the dynamic in the last election, certainly the uh, the, the election that propelled the Trudeau Liberals into power, uh, came about a lot as a result of younger voters. Those wee kids really delivered for Justin first time around and and propelled him to uh, to power. And now uh, you're, you were just noting this time around uh, that the, a lot of the youthful energy uh, if at the voting level, appears to be ready to be snapped up by the NDP on the condition, as you pointed out quite accurately, that those young people show up. They are the least likely to show up any given election in Canada. How do you think they're, they're going to uh, populate the polls this time around? Well, it'll be interesting to see because one of the decisions that Election Canada just made was to cancel on-campus voting for university students. And they offered up uh, a lack of staffing and the quick election call for the reason for canceling this. But it really has a lot of student groups outraged uh, who are calling it a form of voter suppression. Mm -hmm. Now, I wouldn't go that far. But I do think that when you narrow the opportunities for young people to vote, that you will see a decline in uh, youth turnout. And in this particular election, that will likely disproportionately hurt the NDP as the party that seems to be leading amongst young people. It's interesting that you would say this because the government of Canada, typically an election, costs us a half a billion dollars. This time around, it's six, not 500,000, it's 600, not thousand either, million. It's 600 million dollars for this election. And Professor Savage, the 100 million dollar top-up is said to be exclusively dedicated at COVID-proofing this election campaign to make it okay for Canadians to actually get out in the middle of a blinking pandemic and do their civic duty. So interesting, they're going to drop an extra hundred million, and yet somehow or another, students got left out of the mix. It is, uh, it is a very interesting dynamic, and as those young people move to a different party, I think that the Liberals will start to beat the drum of strategic voting louder and louder, in particular if the Conservatives continue to overtake them in the polls. You know, I think going into the election, the Liberals thought they might cruise to a majority, given that they were riding pretty high in the polls Mm -hmm. and that O'Toole was clearly underperforming. Right. But uh, it didn't take long into this election campaign for the tide to turn against the Liberals. I think that there's still a lot of campaign to go. Sure. The leaders' debates haven't happened yet. You know, there may be a knockout punch there that really changes the dynamic. But that is why, that's one of the reasons I think that strategic voting campaigns from outside organizations like unions have been undermined. It's because um, they these organizations aren't very good at predicting surges mm-hmm. or slumps in party support that might happen mid-campaign. 
And so you might back a candidate who you think is a strategic choice on day one of the election, but come election day, it's clear they're going to lose and you've really undermined uh, your entire campaign. When uh, the uh, you talk about unions as being major players in this whole strategic voting uh, dynamic, and certainly they're they're at it again in 2021. But it's interesting because the liberals for the, I'm sorry the union movement for the last couple of elections seems to have supported the liberals more than their traditional allies, the NDP. When did that fork in the road occur? When did the NDP cease to be the voice of labor in Canada? That's a great question and something that I've written on uh, quite a bit. And I don't know if we can pinpoint a specific date, but I think the origins of this union-backed anti-strategic voting really date back to the 1999 provincial election in Ontario, where the NDP government became very unpopular with the union movement uh, by passing a wage restraint legislation And that created a fissure in the relationship between unions and the party that reverberated across the country, Mm. even in places uh, like B.C., where there was also a very unpopular uh, NDP provincial government, you might recall, Mm -hmm. in the 1990s. So so that really was the, the genesis for this. And over the years, an increasing number of unions have loosened their ties to the NDP. And they've sought, sought these maybe these quid pro quo relationships with different parties that they thought might be best positioned to win. And so at the federal level, uh, that has traditionally been the Liberal Party, you know, considered in Canadian politics, the natural governing <laughs> party. And so it's made sense for unions to gravitate in that direction. Sure. Although it should be pointed out that in in ridings uh, and in elections where the NDP is poised to win, you will see unions uh, revert back to that position as well. Where it's consistent, though, is across the board, anti-conservative is really what's leading the charge on union politics. What are the rules uh, once now that we're inside the uh, the election campaign and the writ has been dropped? Even the broadcasting industry is is it's the broadcast act is superseded by the elections act. What is the uh, what are the allowances for groups like organized labor in terms of their spending uh, abilities during the election campaign? Well, Canada has, and the many provinces have seen a lot of campaign finance reform yes. in the last decade or so. And, uh, and so there are some caps on third-party spending limits, although uh, unions have been able to afford some pretty impressive ad campaigns, even within that cap. You might know that Unifor, for example, released an anti-O'Toole uh, ad um, with the, the broken down pickup truck? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You might have seen the broken <laughs> down pickup truck ad. Hard to miss, Larry. <laughs> and I think some other unions are yet to release uh, ads, but I think that you're going to see that they will be anti-conservative uh, in nature. And uh, it's important to note that the legislation doesn't really uh, restrict a union's ability to commute communicate directly with its own members. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, they could spend um, significant amount, amounts of money to communicate their messaging uh, within their own memberships as democratic organizations. 
Indeed. So uh, let's talk a little bit about how strategic voting can backfire, because we've talked a lot about why uh, the why people think that way, while organized labor works hard and spends money to, to, to get us to think that way and behave that way. Uh, it doesn't always necessarily uh, turn out the way it was hoped to, however. So how does this stuff backfire? Yeah, so let me use some BC examples okay. because I think BC is a province where there's a lot of talk of strategic voting, and that's because there's so many federal ridings where multiple parties are competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, strategic voting campaigns pick the wrong candidate more often than you think. In 2011, for example, there were seven ridings targeted by uh, the Canadian Auto Workers Union, where their preferred candidate actually finished third. Oh. One of those ridings that they targeted was in Esquimalt, and they targeted it for strategic voting based on past results, and they encouraged people to vote liberal as the party best positioned to defeat the Conservatives. On election day, though, the liberal candidate actually finished a distant third place, hmm. barely winning 10% of the vote. And the NDP candidate, Randall Garrison, who's still the MP there, he defeated the Conservative by just a few hundred votes. In other words, the union had clearly backed the wrong candidate. Uh And in the process, they almost helped to hand the seat over to the Conservatives. Uh, Another great example, this from 2015, there was an anti-Conservative organization called Lead Now, community organization. Mm -hmm. They targeted a handful of B.C. ridings for strategic voting. And in three of them, they mistakenly backed the NDP candidate who finished third. And in two of those ridings targeted in the B.C. interior, that proved very costly because Lead Now's strategy um, likely helped incumbent conservative mm-hmm. MPs to maintain their seats when, in, when they had spent so much money and effort trying to unseat them. Now, in this campaign, in 2021, the dynamics are going to be different again, right? The liberals are down in the polls. The NDP's up. Yep. It could be that Jagmeet Singh performs extremely well in the debates, and the NDP becomes the clear alternative to the Tories in places like the B.C. interior. The lesson here is that past performance is not necessarily indicative of future success, especially in ridings where there are multiple competitive parties And in B.C., there are lots of three-way races. Now, of course, union leaders took um, credit when Harper lost that election in 2015. And they took credit in 2019 when Andrew Scheer lost. But here's the thing. The evidence showed that their strategic voting campaigns weren't actually a determining factor Mm. in ridings that were targeted for that purpose. And so even though they lost, you can't draw a connection between a conservative loss and an anti-strategic or an anti-conservative strategic voting campaign. So it's complicated. Uh, Terry Lake is joining us. Mr. Lake is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. And Mr. Lake is with us here today to talk about an initiative taken by privately owned Canadian uh, seniors companies, Rivera and uh, Chartwell come to mind immediately, uh, uh, who have decided amongst themselves to enforce a mandatory COVID-19 shot policy for their employees. Terry Lake, first of all, thanks Thanks for getting up early and joining us, and good morning. 
Good morning, Sterling. Great to be with you. It's good to have you with us, Terry. First of all, if you could, you just take a moment and uh, uh, sort of finesse the uh, the arrangement that I was talking about. Chartwell, Rivera, Extendicare, Siena Senior Living. These are private uh, companies that own numerous seniors facilities across Canada. And and this initiative was sort of self-induced, if I'm not mistaken, correct? That's correct. These are uh, companies that uh, provide uh, a range of seniors living uh, services across Canada, uh, ranging from independent living, uh, you know, retirement type of living, uh, to assisted living and long-term care. Uh, they, uh, three of these companies operate here in British Columbia, uh, but uh, they operate right across Canada. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there are different rules in different provinces, right. Sterling. Here in British Columbia, we uh, are going to have a mandatory vaccination policy in long-term care and assisted living starting October 12th. Uh, but that's not true in other parts of Canada. So rather than wait for, for other provinces uh, to, uh, to make that uh, similar policy, they are, in all of their operations across the country, going to have a mandatory vaccination policy. Indeed. So in, for example, Alberta and Saskatchewan, which we know, Terry, have yet to implement any of those sorts of mandatory province-wide programs. These companies are going to do it anyway. Absolutely. They have recognized that this is the most vulnerable environment possible uh, for those uh, impacted by COVID-19. And, uh, you know, we've seen that uh, outbreaks in long-term care and assisted living almost exclusively have come from staff members Mm -hmm. who are asymptomatic. They don't know they're sick, uh, but bring the virus in. And, uh, you you know, we saw the devastation that this has had on on, uh, long-term care across the country. So, you know, we've come so far and the vaccine has made such a difference in these settings that they've taken that step and said, look, if you want to look after uh, vulnerable Canadians, uh, you must you must be sure to be vaccinated so you're not posing a risk. Indeed. Uh, here's, here's a quote from the statement that this uh, group of companies uh, issued yesterday. Quote, frontline staff at each organization have demonstrated an enthusiastic response to our voluntary vaccination programs. We thank them for their commitment, but we need to do more. Employees who aren't fully vaccinated as of October 12th will be placed on unpaid leave of absence. That pretty much uh, defines the way it's going to be going forward. What sort of resistance does there remain at the staff level to your understanding, Terry? Well, there's always going to be some uh, people that are still unsure that you know have some concerns about possible adverse effects. Some people say that uh, you know the vaccine hasn't been out long enough to know the uh, you know the potential side mm-hmm. effects. Uh, and so we need to do a, a really good job of educating uh, people to make them understand this is a very safe and very effective vaccine. It's gone through rigorous testing. And in fact, uh, SafeCare BC, which is the industry association that looks after health and safety uh, for long-term care in uh, British Columbia, is putting together a, an extensive education program that uh, that we can use for all of our members and employees uh, to make sure they understand the the risks of COVID nineteen and the benefits of the vaccine and and uh, how it uh, will protect them uh, and uh, and not result in any of those adverse effects at least you know the effects are are, are um, 
so minimal, uh, Sterling, that uh, they, they, the benefits far, far, far outweigh any side effects. Indeed. Can you break down for us, Terry Lake, please, the percentage of individual seniors in care in British Columbia who are in care at a privately owned facility versus a publicly owned facility? In, uh, in British Columbia, we are a little different than the rest of the country, and um, we have essentially three segments of long-term care. Those uh, homes that are operated by health authorities like Vancouver Coastal, those that are operated by not-for-profit contracted providers, and then the other third by for-profit uh, contracted providers. But they all work within the, the public subsidized uh, health care system. So when you go into long-term care, for instance, Sterling, you pay essentially a, a certain portion of the of the cost based on your income. Right. But um, it's uh, it's very well publicly supported. And so uh, our industry association, BC Care Providers, uh, represents the contracted uh, providers, including not-for-profits and for-profits. So in British Columbia, there's uh, probably just over 30,000 British Columbians in long-term care. So a third of those would be looked after in the for-profit contracted sector. Ah, okay. Now, there's a a push from, uh, during this federal election campaign, there's a push from the NDP to, again, to distinguish themselves from the Liberals who have ripped off most of their platform anyway, so they've they've got another one, and this time around, they're going for a national, publicly owned senior care approach. In other words, those private companies that have just, that we're talking about this morning, who have taken it upon themselves to do the right thing, uh, will, uh, you know, to the uh, chagrin of their shareholders, who knows? But nonetheless, they've done the right thing. So the NDP want to see the end of all of that and nationalize senior care. Uh, as a person involved in senior care and knowing that the spectrum provided and available to Canadians, what's your response to that? Well, I think it's um, uh, very much based in ideology, but it's really not based on outcomes. What we want for seniors in care is obviously quality of life uh, and to have a, a very high standard, make, making sure they're looked after in the best possible way, have the staff uh, that are required uh, to do that. And ownership model doesn't have uh, very much uh, to do with that, uh, with those factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what the NDP would do is essentially spend billions and billions and billions of taxpayer money uh, to expropriate private businesses without adding one extra space mm-hmm. for uh, long-term care for Canadians. And with the demographic shift we're seeing, uh, we need to spend another $50 billion building more long-term care homes, not purchasing the ones that are already out there. So um, it really is not uh, an effective way of using taxpayer dollars uh, to achieve the the goal that you want, which is more and better care for our seniors. Uh, Just to follow up on that, Terry, before we take the break, the boomer cohort, the largest single population group of the 20th century, now in the 21st, is aging rapidly. And uh, I wonder, just as you you were talking about demographics and and the need for more uh, care uh, facilities to be available going forward. What kind of shape are we in right now to accommodate the reality of aging boomers? Well, we're not in very good shape, uh, Serling. And if I can draw a parallel to climate change, we all have known for many years, decades, in fact, that climate change was a problem. But we keep putting it off, keep putting it off. And now, you know, we find ourselves with 
wildfires and heat domes and and all of the you know the, the effects of climate change mm-hmm. the same is true of the demographic shift we, we everyone knew this was coming but we're not prepared and uh, you know even plans here in british columbia to uh, replace uh, older health health authority facilities and add 1500 more spaces isn't nearly enough to meet the demand that uh, we're going to have over the next uh, 10 to 20 years so I think governments across the country uh, need to put their heads uh, to uh, this this very significant challenge. Uh, the uh, Royal Bank of Canada just did a, a, a kind of an outlook over the next 10 years, and it points to climate and it points to aging as the two biggest challenges that Canada faces. So we can't put our heads in sand. We need to uh, we need to face these challenges head on mm-hmm. and and base the solutions in reality rather than ideology. Perhaps that would be handy too, wouldn't it? Of course, um, you know, as someone that spent a, quite a bit of time in in, in politics, I can tell you that. Where you uh, kind of go down blind alleyways is when, when you rely on ideology. You need to be pragmatic. You need to look for outcomes. Uh, and that's uh, how you get to a better, a better state. And when we're looking at seniors' care, uh, we should look to the families. We should look to the residents. Uh, to the kind of outcomes that they want for their families, and then uh, design the system to uh, to give those outcomes. Hey, Terry Lake is on the line. Mr. Lake, the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. I had an email during the break, Terry, that uh, from Al that I think is pertinent to the conversation. Al wants to know how many people, as we look at COVID casualties, and we're talking about that in terms of measures taken by private providers uh, to coincide with the government mandate with, with respect to vaccinations in COVID and senior facilities. But with respect to casualties, Al just wants to know how many people died in private care as opposed to public care? That is a very good question. And it depends uh, where you look and, uh, and, and, uh, and when you look. In the first wave in uh, Ontario, for instance, uh, Sterling, uh, for-profit providers were hit uh, harder in mm-hmm. terms of uh, the number of um, uh, people affected. But uh, ironically, or maybe not ironically, but uh, uh, at the same time in Quebec, where 80% of the homes are government-owned and operated, uh, they also had a huge impact of COVID. So in one province with with mostly private, uh, they were impacted tremendously. But in the the province right next door, uh, the uh, publicly owned hospitals and and, uh, residential care were affected uh, just as much. So it really is... um, not the case that the ownership model makes a big difference. The the seniors advocate is doing a review and we actually are doing our own review. But some of the factors we know are are really critical uh, is the prevalence of the virus in the community. So in Fraser Health, for instance, during the second wave, we saw more, more outbreaks in in care homes in Fraser Health because of the huge rise of the virus in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, people that work in long-term care live in the community and they bring it in to the long-term care home. That's why we were so adamant about having rapid testing long, a long, long time ago, sure. which we think would have helped uh, stem that entrance of the virus into uh, into long-term care. Al, thanks very much for your question. Uh, Terry, you are the former MLA for Kamloops, North Thompson. You've talked about your career in politics on the program this morning. I want you to listen to a segment from Jazz Joe Hall's show yesterday in which he talks to current Peace River MLA Mike um, Bernier about having received death threats. Listen to this. 
Well, I'll, I'll be very open with you, Jazz. Uh, I wasn't until about 10 minutes before. I mean, I'm, I'm quite well known. We're a small region. People are usually very respectful, even if we have polarizing or opposite opinions. Uh, you know, I've been trying to be one of those ones that, you know, I'll listen to all sides. And, you know, it doesn't mean I always take your side, but I'll listen to your side. Uh, but about 10 minutes before the rally started, the RCMP showed up and said that there had actually been uh, death threats uh, that had come through against me at uh, the rally. So it was unfortunate that uh, what was going to turn into, and it stayed, a peaceful rally, uh, but had to have RCMP presence, and they tried to get me off the stage because they were worried uh, for my safety. This was a rally in his constituency with respect to the, announce- the announcement of vaccine passports and that program being implemented. Not the most popular announcement in that writing, but gosh, Terry, death threats? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really sad. And I think um, that shows the polarization that has occurred. Uh, we see it you know, more so in the United States, but it's, it's happening in Canada and I think people are, you know, looking at the COVID situation and the efforts of governments uh, to impose uh, mandates that will protect the public. You know, the greater good that governments always have to look out for. But people are, are using these um, necessary uh, instruments of government uh, to, you know, to polarize uh, the debate and uh, the intolerance we're seeing is remarkable. Uh, the Prime Minister's uh, event yesterday mm-hmm. in Bolton, Ontario, had to be cancelled. Right. It, it is really sad. I mean, I, I experienced some of this in my career, <laughs> particularly during the HST uh, discussion days. And when I was Health Minister, I had one uh, veiled threat that the RCMP were worried about. But, you know, it really wasn't at the level that it is today. So I think... Everyone needs to calm down and um, and understand that politicians, uh, whether they agree with you or not, they're all trying to do the right thing. And we're all learning together how to deal with this pernicious virus that has uh, impacted everybody's life. And Mike said uh, to to, uh, to Jazz, uh, you know, I'm, I am a politician. I do represent one party, but I do make it a point as much as possible to listen to all sides. I'm not necessarily going to take your side, but I'm certainly going to hear you out. And that's kind of key to moving this thing down the field, isn't it? It is, and I find that people that are very vocal um, on one side of a debate, and often it's a, it's a minority, but they're very vocal. They use bullying tactics, and, um, you know, people who think the government is doing the right thing tend not to come out and, and say anything. Of course, they just want to get on with their lives. Sure. But it does seem to tilt the playing field, and um, I think all politicians need to be extremely concerned for themselves and their families, not to be paranoid, but to be cautious. And, um, you know, we as citizens need to talk to our friends and our neighbors that, that may feel very, uh, you know, strongly about some of these issues. And, and I think as people have a chance to vent and discuss them, maybe they'll, uh, they'll understand that we're all in this together. We're all trying to do the right thing. We won't all agree but we'll get through it. And um, and we live in a, a wonderful country, uh, a model of democracy, and uh, we don't want to trade that in for some kind of uh, state where we're at war with each other all the time. No question about it. And well said, Terry Lake. We do appreciate you getting up early on a Saturday morning to share some time with us. And uh, thank you very much. Great to have uh, a chat with you, Sterling, and look forward to the next one. Kids will be heading back to class, as best we know, and I think as most of us hope they will. For parents, 
That means back-to-school shopping. And according to a recent survey, parents are prepared to spend. So let's talk about that. And along with it, how about some tips on how parents can cut back on some of the costs associated with getting kids classroom ready? Always a pleasure to welcome the incredibly wide-awake Jennifer McCracken, licensed insolvency trustee and senior manager with BDO Debt Solutions here in Vancouver. Jennifer, good morning and welcome back. Thank you for having me, Sterling. It's a pleasure. You know that. So let's talk about that. You have children, uh, and uh, it's back-to-school time. Tell us about this survey and how much parents are expecting to have to fork over just to get Junior uh, back to class. Yes, so the survey basically is measuring what uh, parents are anticipating to purchase for back-to-school. So for a range of things from electronics to school supplies, clothing, parents are estimating they're going to spend about $1,300 for back-to-school expenses, which will probably probably be a shock to some parents' budget if that money is not set aside. So what about a multiple kid family? If it's is 1300 bucks period or 13 per kid? Well, I, actually, that's a great question. It probably really is about 1300 per child, although we would anticipate in households where parents have older siblings and there, there could be a sharing of supplies, a handing down of backpacks and clothing. Uh, so there could be an opportunity certainly to save in, in households where parents have multiple kids going back to school. And I think that it's important, as I said at the outset, Jennifer, you know, we're all, those of us with children, uh, ostensibly heading back to school in the next two or three weeks, have fingers crossed, eyes crossed, everything we own crossed to get this thing back to normal or something resembling normal. And I think because of that, the parents are feeling the pressure even perhaps a little more this year. What do you think? Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And one thing that the survey measured that was interesting is that in terms of the priorities and how parents parents were planning to spend, their top priority actually related to making sure that their kids were happy. So I think there is a sense that, you know, obviously with the COVID-19 pandemic, we had at-home learning. Uh, so there's, there's a sense of anticipation that kids are going back to school and there really is, is a focus around making sure children are happy. So it may not be so much about uh, looking at the checkbook and making sure that the funds are there. It's about making sure the kids are happy, they have the right kicks, they have the right backpack. And that is a lot of pressure for parents uh, to deal with. So certainly we are encouraging folks to um, you know, get kids involved in the budget, let them help make uh, choices around you know, what are the needs, what are the wants, and let them understand if they want a more expensive item, it could mean sacrificing something somewhere else in the budget. So any parents that are feeling that stress, we certainly encourage you to get your children involved in the process. This is a great opportunity. I always say financial literacy starts at home. Yes. And certainly this is a great opportunity to have some financial literacy component to the back-to-school shopping, and your kids will certainly appreciate, um, you know, being involved in the discussion as well. Well, of course, they're involved in the discussion whether you want it or not, because they, <laughs> hey, I want one of those. Everybody in my class is going to have one of those. I have to have one of those. And of course, that discussion is already well underway in many households. The big expense, though, uh, Jennifer, seems to be devices. It used to be uh, pencils and backpacks and clothes and that kind of thing. Now, most kids have a device of some kind, and they aren't cheap. No, that's true. And a lot of uh, the, the um, academia in school, it's, it's actually delivered through some type of device. So certainly that it is actually estimated to be the, the most expensive uh, cost for the back-to-school supplies. Sure. So certainly, um, again, trying to do comparison shopping, um, if there's any older devices that can be used and, and you can take time to save. You know, if we think, keep in mind, you know, you want to sort of stagger some of the expenses. So if there's an ability to just buy the necessities at the start of the year and then 
slowly acquire the other items throughout the year, that's also a way to save money for some of the larger expenditures like the tablets, like the laptop. Mm-hmm. A lot of schools, not all, but some schools used to, uh, it's been a while since my kids were in school, you can probably tell, but they used to require, they would give you a kid on the first day. Here's a list of all of the stuff that we expect your child to show up by the end of this first week with in order to go through the rest of the year. So they would give you a list of literally a year's worth of school supplies that you had to purchase within the next couple of days and have back to school. And they wanted everything on that list purchased up front. So despite the fact that it may very well, you you don't need 20 pencils to start classes. One or two will do. But nonetheless, they wanted 20. So how do you how do you sort of get around that obstacle? Well, that's actually a very good point because you're, you're entirely correct that a school will provide a supply list. So this will help you from, you know, prevent you from buying things that you don't need or right. are not necessary for the school year. So what you can do, and we certainly recommend, is have a look around the house, have a look at some of the supplies from last year, if, if some of the stuff's still in good shape. Um, obviously, use what's already there. You're also teaching your children uh, really good financial habits by using what you have and not, you know, spending your money frivolously. So right. that would be one great way to to save money. Um, you can also look online uh, for comparison shopping. So there's actually a lot of uh, deals online and and you can certainly look around and and try to find the best price as opposed to just going to one store. Mm -hmm. Um, And then one thing that my clients do is they'll partner with other parents. So if there's an opportunity to buy something in bulk or if you're aware of something that is cheaper, you can sort of partner with other families and and friends and you can certainly acquire some things um, for for cheaper if you you buy that way. Mm -hmm. Just back to your point earlier about pressure that parents feel at the beginning of the school year, Jennifer. This year, a little a little more, I would think, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is in addition to the loss of socialization and all the schmoozing aspects of school, a lot of children have lost ground. They're behind where they should be uh, simply because they didn't adapt to uh, online learning as, as uh, readily as others and so on. So parents now are feeling the pressure not only of getting back to normal, in quotes, but also getting that child back up to speed and and being at at the same level as uh, his or her classmates. And that, uh, that pressure resonates on parents. Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing we have to keep in mind is that there's so much pressure right now on families and parents are trying to navigate the process. Um, you're right. A lot of kids really didn't respond that well to that home learning. And so having to transition back now, in addition to dealing with the financial stress of, of getting the kids ready and buying everything they need, there's really a lot on, you know, a lot of the parents' plates. So certainly um, we, we encourage folks to sit down and create a budget, anything you can do to take the financial stress off. And it gives you the energy to focus on the other things, that's really, really going to help things out. I certainly see it in my practice where as soon as we find some financial relief for the client, they really are able to put their energy into other things. So if you can bring the financial stress down for this part of year, that'll certainly help the families that are struggling with those other issues with the back to school. I love your point about family, uh, financial literacy begins at home. And it's not a bad thing to say if, if you know, if your child comes to you and says, look, I, 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 I got to have this, I got to have this particular laptop because it's the cool one that all my classmates are going to have. So it, you, it's not a bad thing to say, okay, but you know, that costs more than the one we were planning on buying you. So if you want that, 
we're probably not going to be able to buy you this. Are you okay with that? That's a, that's, and that's a good involvement in a real situation. It is. And the thing is, a lot of parents that aren't doing this with their children at home, they should understand children respond very well um, to these types of exercises. I have taught financial literacy classes in high schools, and they really get into it. So if you, you build out the budget, you have them go through the school supply list, really have them part of the discussion. They will realize, and the reality is a lot of kids will compromise, right? Mm-hmm. So um, they have to, right? That's actually part of life. So the reality is sitting down, having them part of the discussion, build out the budget, you know, have them come with you for the purchases. Have them go online. If, if depending on the age of the child, they'll probably be able to find the deals online faster than you. I was just going to really say that. That's right. They're involved. better online than you are. So <laughs> include that part too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and they'll really get into it. And and it's just invaluable what you are teaching your child at that time because that is actually part of life. Is we do have to make sacrifices. We do have to live within our means. And any time you can have a discussion around needs versus wants, right. that is a life skill that um, you know probably all of us are still attempting to perfect. So start them young if you can. <laughs> right. And it's, there's a big difference between needs and wants. And uh, the sooner there, that there's at least an explanation of the difference, the earlier that begins, the better off you're going to be. Oh, absolutely. And it's it, it really, truly, because the, the reality is a lot of the stuff that they're probably asking for that is, is going to break the budget, there probably is a cheaper, more affordable item that could be purchased. So again, it just really just goes back to teaching them to live within their means. And maybe they don't realize that. So if, if, if we're just buying everything that they want, if you say the parents are reporting their top priorities, making sure their kids are happy, we're really not doing our kids any favors if we don't really sit down and say, look, this is the budget and, and this is the amount that we're going to spend. Mm-hmm. And the, you have to work within in this range, and I think it, it really is a great time. And kids at any age, right? So get them involved. It, it, if they're going to school, they are capable of learning about the budget and are capable of having that discussion with you, needs versus wants, and really getting them engaged gets them also excited about the return to school, which I think a lot of kids now, they are really excited to get back. Well, Jennifer McCracken from BDO First Call Debt Solutions back with us on the program this morning. Jennifer is a licensed insolvency trustee and a senior manager with BDO. Jennifer, so far in that we've been basically talking about back to school for, well, K-12s, but there's a whole other cohort that is on the verge of returning to campuses of colleges and university students across BC are all set to go back for in-person learning after a year of online. And of course, there's still all sorts of COVID realities to deal with and adjustments according to that. But in addition to being at college and on campus for the first time for many of these young people and managing their own money and being responsible for everything. How ready is this group this year? Well, that's a really great question. And and really, you know, there's a lot that people are processing right now, but we generally find a lot of students do report that they feel overwhelmed about their finances when they're in university. So whether it's working on a budget, having the funds to actually cover expenses like their tuition fees, um, it really is a very stressful time. So we certainly recommend that parents sit down uh, with their children and create a budget. I usually recommend to my clients that they have their university student prepare the budget themselves, right? So we want to let them do it on their own and sit down and review it. So it's really important to understand that students track what money is actually coming in. So through the student loans programs, through grants, scholarships, any kind of income that they plan on earning, they really want to have a sense of what is the what are the actual inflows to the budget and then work through the expense items. So of course we know there's tuition, there's books, mm-hmm. they could be living on their own. Sure. We really want them being able to live um, within that budget and actually have the funds available to meet all of 
their expenses because, of course, the risk would be that they get one of their uh, student credit cards and they start dipping into that to actually meet their living expenses. We want to, as much as possible, support the students that they create a budget and really live and stick to that as best as possible while they're studying. Now, we talked earlier about uh, having the conversation around the corner, around the table, rather, with uh, young children going back to school and demanding this and that and the other thing and and talking about trade-offs that sometimes are necessary when you want this and can't afford it or you may want this and you have to do a little less of that that sort of thing that's the money talk well in a lot of instances and a lot of families that talk never occurred so you're saying that if it hasn't occurred prior to post-secondary level before he or she takes off for that college or university you better have the money talk that's been postponed up until this point Absolutely, because you know the re- the reality is for most Canadian students, they will graduate with debt, right? So the average debt load, if just for an undergrad program, is about twenty eight thousand dollars. Yep. Any student that's specializing, doing any kind of post grad program, typically their debt load is about a hundred thousand dollars on graduation. A lot of students, and actually BDO did a survey a couple of years ago, and so many of the people reported that they really wish that they spent, like after graduation, of course, wish that they spent differently, that mm-hmm. they lived more frugally. You know, when you're there in the moment, it's so easy to feel like, you know, when I graduate, I'll have my job, I'll be able to tackle this debt, I'll be able to pay it off. Someone who's so young, this is probably their first time actually dealing with debt and having to deal with paying back debt. And they're they're really not going to have the awareness of how long it takes to pay down debt. And they also may not get the, the salary job that they are anticipating upon graduation. You know, what if their income is lower and they just are making enough money to pay their basic expenses? So these are all very frank discussions that mm-hmm. need to happen with the students to say, look, any debt you are incurring now, it has to be repaid. So incur as little debt as possible. It's really important to emphasize that for students because there, there, there is a bit of a naivety and, and there just isn't an awareness of how they're going to actually tackle. I mean, a lot of my clients have student loan debt. It's actually very, very common. Oh, sure it is. Absolutely. And sometimes, especially if you're in the professions, uh, it's well beyond that minimum number that you were talking about earlier. And you also mentioned the credit card. Mm-hmm. And this is a real black hole for some young people. They go to sign up on, you know, uh, uh, on frosh day and initiation day and registration day. And uh, part of that process involves going by the MasterCard table or the Visa table. There's all sorts of friendly young people who'd be happy there. Get you a, a credit card and get you going. And it's just so darn easy. And, you know, here you go. And so <laughs> there you are, all of a sudden, armed to the teeth with a, with a credit card and some kind of limit. But Still, there's new debt that you, uh, in many cases, can't wait to fill up. You know, you know what? You make such a great point, actually, about Frosh Week, because precisely there are, and, and you can do, it's not just one, right? Typically, a lot of students will acquire a few credit oh, cards sure. while they're, they're on campus. And really, you know, there are benefits. I, I don't want to say that there isn't a benefit to having a student credit card, right? Like, a, an individual could be working on establishing a, a positive credit score. Um, there are benefits um, with some of these cards in terms of discounts or rewards programs. Mm-hmm. And for some students, they legitimately will use the credit card just to deal with cash flow in consistency 
consistencies. You know, as long as you're paying it off in full when the bill arrives, it can be actually beneficial to have access to that credit just to meet some of the expenses. So there is generally a benefit to having a credit card. It's just making sure that it's paid off every month, that you're not incurring too much debt, and really um, learning the financial, really learning the responsibilities around acquiring debt, having credit, and using it responsibly. And a lot of kids are dealing with stress uh, just with their studies, and, mm-hmm. and really it's not a skill that they have. So it's certainly something we encourage folks to sit down and a lot of parents can actually get involved in that discussion and have that open discussion about what debt are your children taking on when they go to university. If they are using student loans, if they have any other type of unsecured debt, there really needs to be a focus around what is the credit limit? How are you using it? Are you paying the bill off in full every month? Um, They certainly can harm their credit if they're not using it responsibly. So that's another piece of the discussion. Uh, Perhaps a credit card could be used more of an insurance policy, Jennifer. There, just in case, in case you bottom out and you hit the brick wall and it's not the end of the month when your next uh, loan deposit gets made or whatever and you're in a pinch that's what it that's when the insurance policy kicks in and that's what it's for rather than well this is what we do every day oh for sure and understanding like it's an opportunity again to teach the financial literacy skills so telling telling your children about the fact that there's a credit limit what are the impacts if you go over your credit limit what is the interest charge if you use the card for cash advances like again really teaching them those skills that they don't won't necessarily I, I presume they're not reading through the cardholder agreement in full. Right, right. right. So how do you, that's <laughs> true, yes. Explain to them what are the implications when you're using, and really, use it for emergencies. You have this in case you need it. You need to take a cab. You need Precisely. It's there if you need it. We don't, we don't necessarily want you dipping into it and using it regularly on a monthly basis. Certainly, if you are, you need to be paying it off in full every month. And the other thing that uh, parents might want to include in the conversation, it seems odd because our kids are so much more online oriented than we are. And yet, it's incredibly important to have that personal privacy online conversation too, isn't it? It is. And, and around things like uh, the pins associated, um, if you, you're having access to um, your accounts on your apps on your phone, it's really important to protect your information as much as possible because, um, you know, it's, it's not like back in the day where you could go into the bank and you're talking to the teller. It's different now. Everything is online. Yep. And there does need to be understanding around don't share your pin with people. You know, how do you protect your PIN? How do you safeguard your online, uh, the login details? And it's really important that um, we teach that to our children as well. Following a summer of record-setting heat waves and devastating forest fires, it has become clear to Canadians that something needs to be done about climate change. But new polling by Ipsos suggests, well, we're divided on whether fixing climate change should come at the cost of the country's economy. The Ipsos poll was conducted exclusively for gold. News and here to talk about the findings is senior vice president from Ipsos Public Affairs, Kyle Braid, joining us here in Vancouver. Kyle, good morning and thanks for getting up early to do this with us. Good morning, Sterling. No problem at all. So we are confused about whether to climate change should be fixing climate change or accommodating or pivoting towards dealing with climate change should in fact harm or cost the economy in a negative way. We are, but we always have been, and it's similar for for a lot of environmental issues. The issue of you know balancing the economy with environmental issues and climate change is is no different. We have about a third of Canadians, thirty five percent, who say you know we need to do whatever we can. Doesn't matter if it's going to hurt the economy in some way. This is so important that we need to do something. So that's about a third of Canadians. Okay. We're down to really only about one in ten Canadians now, thirteen percent, who say, eh. 
you know, if, if it's going to hurt the economy at all, we can wait. We shouldn't really do anything. There's no urgency on climate change. And then we got the big mushy middle, 51% of Canadians who say, yeah, we need to strike a balance here. We need to do something, but if it's really going to negatively impact the economy, we need to be careful about what we do, and we need to be measured and, and not rush into anything. So that's where a lot of Canadians are. Most conservatives are in that, that mushy middle, whereas you know, liberal and NDP voters in this election are, are kind of split between the, you know, let's do something even if it hurts, and the balanced approach. Well, I'm glad you brought up the election, because clearly, of course, this is an election issue, and it is being addressed by all the players on the field. Uh, What priority uh, does it enjoy in the minds of Canadian voters this time around? It's in the top five issues, hanging around at the, 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 the lower end of the top five issues. It's always kind of been in the top ten issues for Canadians. Sure. So it's a little, bit, a little bit higher this election than others, but it is still a little bit, I would say, behind health care, COVID, economy, and affordability. And if you've been watching the campaign, I've certainly seen many announcements, lots and lots and lots of announcements about affordability, the economy, and more about health and COVID than so far I've seen about uh, climate. So while it's up there for voters, the parties probably don't have it as they're, they're one of their top three issues so far. What about this? Uh, you, you talked about this enormous, mushy middle, Kyle, in terms of uh, the, the, the vast majority of Canadians having a sort of, a, 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 not an ambivalent position, but a, well, we could, we could work on this and we could do something together position rather than the extremes. We don't need to do anything or we need to stop everything and, and address it immediately. So in that mushy middle where, where the majority of Canadians are, is there at least even an understanding of the economy and climate change and the fact that they aren't necessarily separate issues and are in in fact inextricably intertwined i think we're we're well past the point where uh you know people are confused about that i think most canadians do understand uh that they are intricately linked some think of it in a fearful way that it means we need to shut down certain industries. Yeah. It's going to have a huge impact on resource industries. And of course, there are those cheery Canadians and 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 you know the liberals certainly talk about this that you know it's it's actually an economic opportunity that if we if we move ahead with uh, with technology and innovation, it's actually an opportunity for Canada to lead the world and and create new jobs and green jobs and all that stuff that uh, you know you hear about in the uh, the green plan of the United States. Mm-hmm. So there, so people do think that it's just a. Canadians differ greatly in terms of how they frame it and whether they're optimistic or fearful about it. And Kyle, what about uh, Canadians from region to region? I doubt we're unanimous in terms of our opinions and sentiment toward this. Uh, Here in British Columbia, it's been a particularly rough, and you live here, it's been a particularly rough year, just in terms of, uh, again, with the forest fires and and the drought and the heat dome. I mean, it's been an exceptional year. Are are we different in terms of our sentiment versus people in, say, Quebec or the Maritimes? times? Well, in terms of the extreme weather events, you know, 84% of Canadians say, you know, extreme weather events are getting worse. Mm-hmm. Two-thirds of Canadians say it's impacted me personally, and those numbers are higher in BC than other places. Uh, 77% of Canadians tell us that these ex- recent weather events make them more concerned about climate change. But, and here's the big but, if you look at the underlying numbers that we've been tracking for years on sort of attitudes towards climate change, those numbers haven't really shifted. So people are saying, you know, it's, it's having an impact on their views of climate change, but in reality, they, they, haven't, they haven't shifted much. You know, regionally, 
Yes, BC's higher. Quebec is traditionally higher. And of course, Alberta's, you know, less concerned. But the differences aren't quite as dramatic as you might think. 77% of Canadians tell us that uh, Canada needs to do more to address climate change. Okay. That number is 66% in Alberta. So it's not like Albertans don't recognize uh, the need to act on climate change. They may differ in terms of, certainly in terms of the details and what needs to happen. Uh, but, but the the overall sentiment that climate change is important and it's going to impact us and we're going to have to make changes because of it doesn't differ that greatly across the country. How about taking that one half step further and going to the statement that is made by many political uh, parties? Uh, climate change is an existential threat to humanity. Uh, where do we where do we go on that one? Uh I think most Canadians would agree with that. Um, However, you're going to find big differences, of course, on political lines with that one, particularly among conservatives. But even even here among conservatives who have gotten a bad rap, and you can see that they're they're acting very differently this election. They've got an actual climate plan yes. this time around. You mm-hmm. can you can poke holes in it, and, and I think it's true to say that you know most conservatives in our poll, uh, you know, accept that climate change is real and that we need to act. But certainly. Uh, while most conservatives, you know, support action on climate change, those who are, are deniers or are against it, they tend to they tend to be in the conservative party. Are there any? Uh, I don't know whether you cover this in the survey or not. Are there already those defeatists among us, Kyle, who have decided it's too late? We're already done. Well, there are lots of those people. Um, there are. Let me find it here. There's about. 34% of Canadians who say, you know, there's not much Canada can do because we're such a small country. Um, there are about 60% of Canadians who say, you know, whatever we do on climate change, it is going to hurt us financially. And there's about half of Canadians who say that no matter how hard we try as a country, we're not going to be able to make significant reductions in climate change in, in our emissions in the next 10 years. So, you know, about half of Canadians say, no matter what we do, I'm pessimistic that we're going to be able to achieve anything great on this, this file in the next decade. Interesting. And that, of course, will color uh, the vote and the pitch during the campaign. Kyle, thanks very much for this. Hi, it's Shauna. And I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan. And I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.